This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. This is episode 28, and in this episode, we are going to visit some of the games that I'm running, as well as talk about some of the lessons that I've learned from each of the games. I like to do my recaps that way. This podcast was meant to help people learn how to run campaigns from an old school perspective. I like sharing the lessons that I learned from games because... I think that's what I want to hear when I listen to other people recap their games. What did you do? How did you do it? What things can I learn from it and shamelessly steal to use in my games? Because that's all what we're doing. We're, We're stealing each other's ideas. I'll admit it. I do. And I honestly hope that you're stealing all of my ideas and coming up with your own because I want to steal yours back. The first game I want to talk about is the solo game with my wife. We've been doing this for going on over 10 years now. And the basic premise of the campaign, I probably haven't talked about that in a while. The basic premise of the campaign is she is the descendant of a famous mage known as Kellis Theran. She had a lover named Calypso who ended up being quite the bastard. He murdered her entire family and left her pretty much homeless. So she started adventuring to regain back some wealth and to get revenge. What she's found herself embroiled in is a bit of a magical war where mages of good and evil are trying to recover these things known as dragon stones. Because you can use dragon stones too summon dragons. And she has managed to get a hold of some of these stones, which then she promptly, unfortunately, lost to some NPC mages. And trust me, she's never let me forget that I took things from her. Note to self, or actually note to you all as well, when playing with your spouse, be careful how much you take from them. Anyway, so she uh, got some stones, lost them, and now she's recovered another one. And she also is uh, walking around with a dragon companion. So it's a fun little game. And she currently is in the city of Zayport trying to get into the last tower of her ancestor. She's the only one that can get into these towers because she is of the blood. And I think I mentioned a few episodes ago that this city that she's in, I've pulled inspiration directly from the city of Jakala, which is from the old uh, D&D-esque game Empire of the Petal Throne, the Tecumel campaign setting. Jakala is the main city, if you will. And the inspiration I took from it is that it is somewhat xenophobic. It's not very friendly to strangers and foreigners. It's a very rigid 
society with a lot of rules and customs and traditions and ways of doing business that isn't cash only. So I put her into that kind of environment. And it's been a lot of fun. The challenge was, is uh, my wife plays a character who is pretty headstrong and driven and uh, gets out the sword and takes no prisoners kind of approach. And so I challenged her with this whole setting to see what she would do. And for the most part, she's kept her head low and has uh, played a pretty quiet and trying just to get through things to get to the tower. So this last couple of games, she bribed an official. They were able to get to the tower, and now she's inside ready to talk to her ancestor. Her ancestor's not really there. What Kellis did was in each one of these towers, as he built them throughout his career and life, he would leave what I guess is very similar in concept to the librarian holograms that, oh, what was that movie? It was a disaster movie from the future um, where they went through and they found, was it... One of the Planet of the no, it wasn't one of the Planet of the Apes movies. I can picture in my head because it was a uh, they went into this library and this hologram appeared and started talking to him about what had happened. Anyway, I stole that idea, and so Kellis essentially has left a part of himself and his intelligence, if you will, or a recording of who he was at that point when the tower was completed. So she's gone through a couple of these already and has talked to Kellis gaining information somewhat at the same time he was in his life, well, this tower should be the final one where she's going to get a lot of information from what he knew towards the end of his life. We'll see how it goes. The next game I want to talk about is my online play-by-post game, which is set in my Etnera campaign. This is set in an area called Scalfir, which is on the southwestmost point of the continent. I did that because I wanted to keep the different groups separated as much as possible by geography and, and now by time, because time has gone more slowly for the play-by-post campaign. The party is currently exploring a lost island city called Ramathia, where they're hoping to find evidence of the elves who originally founded Ramathia because that was the first place that the elves landed when they came to these lands. Now, what's interesting, I'm going to kind of segue here for a minute. I gained my inspiration from the elves from a book series written by Stephen R. Donaldson called Thomas Covenant the Unbeliever. There is a race in that book, a race of giants, and they are known as the Unhomed. They're called that because they have no idea where their homeland is, and their entire existence, if you will, is wrapped up into finding their homeland. Uh, they go out sailing for it, and they can't find it, and they come back, and they're a very long-lived race and a very sad race. Uh, and, and I 
always really was just drawn to their stories and those characters. So when I came up with the elves being a seafaring race, I kind of gravitated toward that idea. And so much like um, the giants in the Unbeliever series, my elves don't know where they came from. They know that they had a home once, and they know that they traveled to these lands from that, but they can't find their homelands. So they've been constantly looking for it. And they have these things called searches where they send elves across the lands to try to find some sort of evidence, if any, that might lead them back to their homelands. Well, they're on a search right now. The players are part of it, and they are at this island city of Ramathia that was abandoned during the apocalypse that uh, shook my world. And uh, they've been exploring it for a while. We're kind of in an interlude right now. They escaped a temple complex that they had explored. They were in kind of a rough area of the city that had a lot of different things going on. Um, they didn't quite find what they were looking for, so they're kind of regrouping right now. And they are on an island harbor, which is just outside the city walls. They've encountered a rather unusual uh, NPC who seems a little bit crazy. And there were a bunch of ships on, wrecked ships on this island, wrecked from, you know, having just been kind of left there. And, you know, as, as ships are left and the you know, ropes have snapped and there was the volcano that exploded, it's just kind of a mess there. So, of course, the players being players, they're like, well, we want to go exploring the ships and find what we can find. So I went through and trolled the Internet and found a couple of uh, tables and whatnot that would, uh, you know, um, give them something to find. And I said, go ahead and roll and I'll tell you what you find. And one of my players rolled a, a very interesting result which has ended up segueing into a kind of a horror story right now. Uh, the, what the player ended up finding was a boat with skeletons inside, inanimate skeletons, and odd scratchings on the gunwale. Now, this player I've been having some interesting interactions with because this player was level-drained. And, again, stealing ideas liberally. If I haven't mentioned this before... One of my constant themes in being a DM is stealing inspiration from everywhere, even if it's direct, copy it and just file off the serial numbers and rename it kind of thing. Well, I took how uh, in Lord of the Rings when Frodo was stabbed with the Morgul blade and every time Frodo would get close to a ring wraith, that wound would somehow affect him and interact with him. I've done much the same with this player in terms of after effects of the level drain. So this player finds a small boat full of skeletons. Later that evening, the player ends up having somewhat of a waking nightmare where he sees the former occupants on the ocean they're rowing and they're muttering and they're yelling in fear and he actually walks out into the ocean to see if he can talk to them and they turn to him and they start chanting in a monotone voice the black the black 
the black, and blackness started erupting from their nose and their mouth and their eyes and their ears, and it was sweeping up over them. Totally a great scene, and this was all generated randomly. Um, the, the, the line was something that you found in the ocean was a, a, a rowboat of people who were rowing, and they were saying, the black, the black. Of course, I had to take it to 11. So there was a nice little interaction there. Um, the cleric uh, intervened and helped the fighter with this. And uh, the fighter has a temporary loss of four constitution for right now because he failed a saving throw with a one. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was kind of fun. And I, I guess the lesson there was, you know, sometimes you get some really crazy random results. But I find a lot of times if I trust the dice to tell the story and I just go with it and kind of develop it out, it ends up being a nice little uh, a nice little encounter. And so had this and uh, they're currently recovering from that now and we'll see where they go next. What I've uh, done is I've planted a clue for them and they just discovered it. So uh, sometimes randomness uh, really helps you out. The next game I want to talk about is my online Roll20 game, also set in my Etnera campaign world. Um, the players are in the mid-northwest area of my campaign land in a different duchy. They're more in a landlocked area, and they've been exploring an abandoned castle called Griffin's Keep that seems to have been... Um, a war band of orcs and goblins and perhaps worse seems to have taken up residence there and may be related to a giant army of bestials, 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 uh, that are besieging a far off city to the west called Shalom. Now, they had originally gone several times to this keep, then returned and gone to the nearby main town where the local lord lives at, had spoken to the lord, and the lord's court mage revealed that these keeps are potentially connected by a long-forgotten uh, system of transportation rings. Yes, I shamelessly stole from Stargate. Sue me. Um, so, um, this mage happened to know how to send them back to Griffin's Keep using this, uh, system and did so, but the players have now run into the boss level, if you will. They've come to the leaders and I'm going to make kind of a small confession here. I'm not that experienced with boss level fights. Um, most of the time, my players haven't gotten that far, or if they've have, it's been a very quick uh, kind of situation because the players have just blown right through it. Um, we won't talk about the two TPKs with the troll mage. <laughs> um, so I wanted this boss fight to go a little differently. 
So the lesson here was for me was setting up this boss fight to be waves. So they come into the main keep of Griffin's Keep, or the main hallway, the main building, if you will. And there's some low-level uh, clerics there. There's a low-level necromancer there. And there are a few zombies. Well, they, you know, fare pretty well with that. Then comes the next wave, which is the other remaining clerics that were in other rooms on this lower level as well as some zombie goblins. And the players are starting to realize that what, what has happened is that all of the orcs and goblins that they killed previously have been all risen or raised as zombies, and they're having to fight them again. They're not real happy with that. So they manage to turn the goblin zombies, and I throw the next wave onto them, which is orc zombies. Now they're starting to get worried because their resources are running out. Their hit point resources, um, their magic spell resources, and they're thinking, you know, this might be a good time to retreat. So they pull off a, a good fighting withdrawal, and they withdraw in fairly good order. Um, they've even captured one of the low-level clerics and are taking him as a prisoner. So they leave the inner bailey area, and they're in the outer bailey of this castle, and they're heading back to the gatehouse. Well, the bosses had already set a trap for the players, assuming that the players were going to hit the gatehouse to try to get back in. And so the players ran into the back end of that trap. There's a bunch of orcs on top of this ruined gatehouse, moat house, with crossbows. So the players started getting crossbow bolts rained upon them. And this is where tragedy struck. Um, the players, through a few adventures, had met the local noble's son. He was a bit of um, a thug. He was a he was a man who was starting to swing to the wrong side of the tracks. Um, and I kind of based him mentally, if you've watched the TV show, um, The Last Kingdom, that's, I think, on Netflix, and it's based on a series of books of the uh, Dark Ages where uh, the uh, um, Britons are fighting off the Saxons and kind of the... the, the history of what's going on. I think, how was that? Uh, 1000 or 1100 AD, somewhere, somewhere around there. Um, my, my memory is not too good right now. Anyway, there was a character in there called Ethelweld, who was the son of a former king, a bit of an ass, a bit of a spoiled brat. And I kind of felt like that if uh, Ethelweld had been maybe... Um, you know, had his head straightened out right a little bit earlier in life, he wouldn't have turned out to be so awful. And so that's how I kind of thought of Huden. Huden was this NPC. Well, the the paladin took him in kind of under his wing and, you know, was, was watching out for him and even serving as a good example, and Huden had actually turned around. In fact, so much so that when the players visited the noble, the noble was very impressed with how Huden was acting and was more than willing to help the players. Well, Huden died. 
My rule is, is that monsters and NPCs, once they hit zero hit points in AD&D, they're dead. Deader than dead. Uh, they have, uh, you know, gone over to the other side. They have joined the choir everlasting. And there is really, yeah, you could do a raise dead or a resurrect or what have you. Um, but you need the body. And <laughs> what happened here was, was that the... the or crossbowmen had killed Yudin with the rain of crossbow bolts. And a couple of the players were going back to help drag his body away. And then one of the players fell. So now the poor paladin had a choice. Does he drag Yudin or does he save one of his fellow party members? Well, he made the choice to save one of the fellow party members and uh, leaving Yudin's body behind, which... They're fairly certain necromancers are going to raise into a zombie. I can neither confirm nor deny that. We'll just have to see what happens next game. Uh, so it was a somber moment, and uh, the uh, player wrote a, a very wonderful journal entry. I will put the link to that journal entry in the show notes if, if you'd like to read it. Even though it wasn't a player dying, there was still that you, you got to respect how the players feel. They were very saddened, and it was just a moment. In my tabletop game, the players have delved into the ruins of Tulloch, both to rescue human slaves and to try to gain a legendary sword, which will allow them to take on the big baddies of the campaign, known as the Dark Ones. These are chaos lords who have returned to this lands to try to overrun it again. Uh, last episode, or last adventure, they were trying to escape the Demon Fortress, which they managed to do. And now they had opened the way to the sword itself. And this is where I, as a GM, ran into an interesting situation. I locked. I had no idea what a Earth Elemental was going to be doing underneath the ground. I had put that Elemental there. I had a vision of what the Elemental was itself doing and how Elementals, what they mean in this world and uh, what the players were going to face. But I wasn't really sure how to present all of this because I, I, I wanted it to feel strange and alien enough that the players really felt like that they were in the presence of something really different. Well, how the heck am I going to do that? And I, I got to say, I've been stressing about this for a couple of months now. Uh, the players have found a new species, a myconid species called the Ilum. I've talked about that in previous episodes, the Ilum being very alien in how they think. And the Ilum know that this elemental, they call it their creator. They know who their creator is, and they have a certain amount of reverence and fear of this creator. I just wasn't sure what to do with all that. So I was thinking, what kind of inspiration could I use for a city that is mysterious and 
alien and unlike anything the players probably have ever encountered before, especially in my campaign. And I happened to be kind of casting about and I ran into a description of the nameless city by H.P. Lovecraft. Now, in this book or story, what H.P. Lovecraft des describes is a very horrible city that was raised countless eons before mankind came around or maybe at the, the, the cusp of, of mankind's birth. And he describes a single solitary adventurer who goes through this city. And we're presuming that this adventurer has somehow survived to be able to share this story. And I'm not going to spoil the, the story for you in case you want to seek it out. You, you can find it online. And I read it and there was the inspiration I needed. So when the players are traveling, the first thing I did was is I hit them with resource issues. It wasn't going to be a matter of turns to get to this place. It was going to be a matter of days. And so they were starting to run out of food and water. Well, fortunately, they had a powerful enough cleric who was able to generate enough, uh, enough food and water through the spell, create food and water, that they're able to slow down the depletion of their supplies. They're still running out. They don't quite have enough. He's not high enough level to give them both food and water. So they're having to make a choice of one or the other, which I think will be interesting on the way back. Anyway, so first off, it's obviously getting, you know, they're getting very deep. And then I'm describing things of how it's hard to breathe, how light seems to be dimming, just giving them that impression that they're under a lot of rock and, and it's just very difficult to get to where they're going. And then I came up with a couple of creatures that I knew were going to be in this uh, in this area around the elemental. One is a creature from the Monster Manual 2 called the Galeb Dur. They're essentially um, walking rocks walking boulders. They have some neat effects. They can do some interesting things, but that's what they are. And to me, that made a good, um, a good monster that you might find around an earth elemental. So the outer part of the city was this very odd place full of these structures that looked like huts or igloos, but their proportions were all wrong. And the way that they were created was all wrong. So, you know, the idea here is, is that the players are finding things that are alien, that they almost want to identify with. Maybe this is a city. Maybe this is some sort of living area. But there's nothing for them to really identify with. There's, you know, no chests or no furniture or, you know, Nothing that seems like this is, you know, a, a, a building or a, an area of buildings that would seem familiar to them. And again, it's taking a long time for them to get through it. They did run into one of the Galeb Dur, but um, it was totally uninterested in them and moved off and they didn't really want to pursue it. Then they came into another area where it was an abrupt change, where now instead of just these kind of formless structures that had been created by stacking rocks, now they were in areas where 
things have been perfectly shaped. And this was the area of the Petch. The Petch are also a monster from the Monster Manual 2, uh, first edition AD&D Monster Manual 2, I should point out. And you can think of them as rock humanoids, uh, goblin-like or human-like uh, with very tough skin, and they exist to mine and carve. And so in my head, these pets were in worship, in worship of the elemental rather than having been created by the elemental. And through their life of living underground, they eventually evolved into the pets. And since they worshipped them, they were creating all of these structures in worship of the elemental. Again, no real things that the players could identify with. The pets were interacting with these very heavy rectangular or cubic um, objects that seemed to be made out of stone. Players had no idea what they meant or what they were for. The patch obviously had some interest in them, so this really concerned the players, and they spent some time following the patch to see if they could figure out what was going on. Uh, they didn't really have any much luck there, and so they abandoned that uh, that line, and they continued exploring, and eventually they came into the area where the elemental was. Now, to get to the elemental, if you can visualize a huge hollow sphere... And coming from the wall of that sphere are stone bridges that go to the center of the sphere. And they're in kind of a random order, some here, some there. And on each of these bridges are these hexagonal columns, about 10 feet tall, perfectly carved, segmented. No markings, no nothing, no real anything that makes any sense but they're just sprinkled on the bridge as the bridge goes towards the center. And in the center of this hollow area is another sphere, a stone sphere, and at the end of each bridge is a huge stone door. That's what the players ran into. Um, I'll kind of speed this along because this podcast is getting very long in my recounting here. Uh, the players made it through all of this. They opened the door. They navigated through this second sphere, which was uh, bright light, so bright that it made everything almost like a, um, almost like the light was a fog. It was so bright, and all you could see was about ten feet in front of you. And they finally ran into the elemental. The, the elemental really didn't care about them much, but it was very concerned about why they had one of the Ilum with them. So it had a conversation with the Ilum, and then it talked to them. And the long and the short of it is they were able to negotiate to get the sword. It has put a geas on them that they now have to help protect the Ilum, and their first job is to go and destroy those um, xenomorphic monsters that the Ilum have run into previously. And I described this in another episode. This is another section of Tulloch that the players have run into where the tunnels look like uh, the xenomorph tunnels from the Aliens movie. And so having negotiated that, they get the sword. And this is where things kind of went sideways. Um, so they have this legendary sword, the paladin goes to reach for it, and then the 
chaotic thief, like, not chaotic so much in like alignment, although you could consider her chaotic. Uh, she's not like an evil character. She's just an unpredictable, very random character. She suddenly decides she wants to reach for the weapon because where the paladin is seeing a shining sword, she's seeing the blackest dagger that she's ever laid her eyes on. They both reached, they both reached for it. There was a small tussle and the thief ended up getting the the weapon. Um I know I'm jumping over a lot here. I, I could probably spend an hour recounting this. The paladin and the cleric were seeing avatars of their god, and their gods explained to them what the weapon was, how it worked, and what they were going to have to do. And to cut to the chase, the players have to figure out a way of themselves becoming gods in order to wield the weapon against the dark ones. And what they found is that gods aren't quite what they may have thought gods were. They're not omnipotent creators who are somehow woven into the universe. They're more like ascended or highly evolved humans where, yes, they're very powerful. Yes, they exist somewhat outside of what the players exist in but they're not quite what the players imagined. In fact, it's actually the elementals themselves that are more of what the players thought gods were. So the gods are explaining this, and, and it was a huge information dump. And it was one of those, epi it was one of those uh, sessions where you got done, and I looked around at the table, and everybody was just somewhat stunned and slack-jawed. And then there was a little bit of aftermath to all that. I maintain a sign-up sheet on Google Docs where my players sign up for the game so that way I know how many are coming. And if there's more than eight, the first eight who sign up get to play and then there's a waiting list. Well, one of my players who had been on the list suddenly disappeared. And so I've spent this past week in somewhat of nervous anxiety because this player is somewhat upset at how things turned out. In fact, that's why this podcast was a little late. I was hoping to put this podcast out on Tuesday, but I didn't want to talk about this game until I had some sort of a feeling of what was going on with this player. I have heard from this player, um, it, and we are going to have a phone call tomorrow, and I hope I can uh, uh, talk this player through it. They are upset. They had kind of seen themselves as the natural wielder of this sword, that this was their destiny and their quest, only to have it usurped by another player. And I think given the session... And and I'll be really honest with you, I, I was dead tired. I had only gotten four hours sleep prior to this session because of a work-related thing going on. Probably didn't explain the whole thing of what was going on to them as well as I could have, but this weapon is not meant for just one of them. It's actually meant for all of them because they're all in some way going to have to contribute to defeating the Dark Ones. 
I probably need to make sure that this player understands this. This is not just the thieves' dagger. This is her dagger, as well as it's going to be the paladin's sword, as well as it's going to be the, you know, the fighter's bow, and so on and so on. So, um, hopefully, we'll we'll be able to take care of that. But that's kind of. It is somewhat of a new situation for me to have to handle. I certainly understand where the player's coming from. You know, this is some this player has been with my campaign almost the entire ten years. And to see something like this just on the cusp of it and then it doesn't go quite the way they thought it was going to, I can understand where that feels, you know. There's a lot of emotions to it, sadness and maybe a little anger, a little disappointment, what have you, a little letdown. I totally get it. And uh, I'll do some talking and, and hopefully I can, uh, you know, uh, help help this player understand what, what's going on and we can pull them back into the game. I would really hate to lose them. Hey, everyone. I didn't want to leave that on that note there. And thanks to the power of audio editing, I'm able to stick in this little addendum. I did manage to get a hold of the player on the phone. We had a great talk. Come to find out there were some assumptions made, some point of view things. And I was able to reassure him and all is well now. Probably had a little bit to do with me working almost uh, 24 hours straight and only getting four hours sleep. Didn't explain things as well. But you know what? live and learn. Everything is all good. And sometimes you just got to reach out to your players after the game and check in and make sure everything's okay. All right, let's get back to the episode. Well, I think that's about it for this episode. I certainly appreciate you hanging on. It's a little bit longer than I normally like to go. It's about double the time I like to go. Um, as always, if you want to give me any comments, leave me any feedback, what have you, please feel free to leave me a message on the voicemail on Anchor or send me an email. Either way, it's all good to me and I really appreciate the feedback and questions. All right, until next time, game on.